So these models are constructive. Data builds a model, and the model trains itself. It trains itself on its own data, and that's totally awesome. Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast. Uh, we are still recording these in uh, our shelter at home. So I think uh, considering we're doing this stuff over the Internet, I don't think maybe it really doesn't matter. But it's uh, it's fun to be able to keep doing this and bringing these episodes to you, uh, no matter what's happening outside our door. And, and as part of that, I'm really excited to have our guest today. This is uh, Simon Crosby. He's the uh, CTO of Swim.ai. Uh, welcome, Simon. It's nice to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Absolutely, and uh, we're we're. I think we're going to be talking about some, just like we've done in the last few episodes. We're going to be talking about some really interesting um, things about data, but in particular, we're going to be talking about in the context of what's going on right now. But before we we get into that at all, uh, Simon, tell us a little bit about yourself. What what's your background? So, how did you how did you end up at Swim, and like what? You know, what's your story? Sure. Um, so I started out as an, as an academic teaching computer science at Cambridge University. And then I uh, started a company called ZenSource, which was a hypervisor company and helped with the cloud. Then I was CTO at a company called Bromium, which took virtualization even further. And then Swim.ai. So I'm a computer scientist and I like doing things which are at the bleeding edge of tech. Yeah, it sounds like it from some of those companies. And uh, you, um, and so tell, tell us a little bit more about uh, Swim.ai, where you are at right now. I mean, what's, what's the, why, why did the company come about? What kind of problems are you guys trying to solve for, for your customers? You know, everybody thinks that it's all about data. And in fact, it isn't. When we compute, we compute on state. We don't compute on data. And so there's this huge disconnect in the industry right now, which is that as we move towards wanting to process in real time on data, you know, accumulated from large numbers of things, mobile devices, users, whatever happens to be, we tend to stick all this data on a hard disk someplace and then compute later. Based on this rather silly assumption that that's a a finite data set that we're done, right? That what's on the disk is enough. And that's just patent nonsense, really. You know, what we have to do is get out of this notion of store then analyze into something much more akin to continually process data, continually analyze and react and then if you really care about storing the original data, sorry. but let's get real. Disks are a million times slower than CPUs. So if you want to deal with vast amounts of data, you have to get rid of this notion of storing and then analyzing data. So Swim is fundamentally about that. And, you know, what's what's kind of the fundamental problem that that led you to that is it was it because because you know in particular i've been really interested in the past about you know what happened with big data and why that maybe wasn't successful and why there were a lot of unsuccessful implementations was it is it kind of what's your view on that by the way why was it unsuccessful 
Well, that's that's why I find really interesting to, to see what you're saying, because I, you know, I remember when I first started having, you know, talking to uh, companies about this, they would they would talk about it and they would say, hey, um, we've we've got this big data implementation. And I would ask them, you know, OK, so how are you processing? How do you get results? And it's like, oh, well, we get results in a couple of days. I'm like, how is that useful? And and I, I find that really interesting how you how you phrase that, because part of what, what, what I'm what I'm poking at is that there's a there's a sense that in, in a lot of what companies are having to do today and the kind of problems they're trying to solve, that kind of time scale of making decisions and getting results just isn't good enough anymore. Is that, yeah. You're absolutely right. But also there's this very interesting, kind of, we're very early in this stage, but think about it this way. You know, learning and prediction, is it better to assemble a vast amount of data and then try and have a model that you pre-built? Or do you have a view of the world which is very similar to you as a human, which is that you learn and predict based on you know, what you do every day? So if I gave you a blueberry muffin, you would know whether you like blueberry muffins based on all the experiments you yourself have run in the past. Okay, So a digital twin of you ought to know that you like blueberry muffins or don't. But you don't find your mom and say, hey, mom, do I like blueberry muffins, right? So the key thing here is that if we move to a model which is continually informed by events from the edge, then digital twins, which are representative of edge things, you know, stupid things or just things that can just tell us their current status, um, digital twins of those ought to be able to observe and learn on the fly, which is totally trippy. And the cool thing is that if you get that right, then you get out of this horrible problem of having to build models beforehand and train them and then push them to the edge. Okay. And there are massive challenges with that. So you get into this notion that things learn based on what they can see and their own data and the things around them. And they form theories and uh, actually get pretty good in many cases. And is that is that at all connect? Because the way you describe that sounds sounds to me like a lot of the things that you know discussions I've had around artificial intelligence and machine learning because they're they're uh, you know they try to kind of add added to the model. So is that a is is that kind of partly driven driven by that that kind of thinking that you you want to build these models which you then can use to make predictions as you go forward? Absolutely, and I'll give you an example of that. I can start now, but we can go into detail. But we're deployed in probably uh, 20 or so U.S. cities where we do real-time traffic prediction. Okay, now we're dealing with vast amounts of data. So, for example, Las Vegas, 64 terabytes a day. You, know, done, you couldn't afford the hardest, right? Um, and each of 3,000-odd digital twins of intersections in our world are learning from their own data and their surroundings and predicting continuously their future state right, for two minutes ahead. And those predictions get sold by an API, streaming API, to vendors like Uber, Lyft, and FedEx and whatever else. Okay, And so the ability to continually process data and continually predict, given what you're seeing right now, is absolutely vital to this next generation of applications in which you always have to have an answer, okay? 
right now you have to have an answer. And the answer from the last batch run just won't cut it. So let, let me ask you a question in, in that in that regard then, because it seems like um, partly what you're, you're balancing there is to need to have near instantaneous kind of, uh, you know, interaction with these digital twins or these models. But you're, but, but in some sense, by doing that streaming, you're also deciding to give up the ability to go back and ask different questions of the data. So for whatever reason, the way you process that data turned out to be, you, you wish you had done it in a different way. Um, you're, you're going to give that up and, uh, you know, potentially say, okay, we're going to, we're going to maybe adjust it as we go along because it's more important to have quick answers than it is to have perfect answers. Does that sound right? <clears throat> so <laughs> I'll give you a, a funny story. I mean, there was an engineer I dealt with at a large manufacturing company and had 40 large compressors, right? And they, for every degree of rotation of every shaft, they get 70 data points. Okay? Wow. That's 300. Okay. These things go 365 days a year at... 2000 RPM. Okay. And these guys thought they had to keep all the data just in case they produced the wrong analytic. Right. Okay. Good luck with that. They start <laughs> off on a MongoDB project. And the last time I talked to them, they were still buying hard disks. So, in many cases, when we deal with the real world, you know, knowing the past state isn't that relevant. There are some cases when it's really important, in which case, yes, you ought to store the relevant things. Often what I see is that the relevant things are not raw data. Let me just be clear. Let's go back to traffic. The stuff we get is ghastly. Voltage changes between relays on ancient bits of traffic infrastructure. And what you really want to know, the thing was red or yellow or green, right? Right. which is tiny. And so there are often much more efficient ways of storing state and time or even insights into state and time, like um, on average people waited this long, you know, in the month of January in Palo Alto, which is fine. You know, if that's the sort of information that is of durable value to you, that's what you store. The key thing is that often we don't need to store all the raw data because that can just be a huge amount of useless stuff. People don't know when to throw it away, and it's extremely expensive. Okay, It's either expensive in terms of effort to store it locally and back it up and everything else, or you've got to get it over a wire into a cloud. And then mm -hmm. once it's there, you're there forever. <laughs> That's, by the way, part of the cloud guys go just give me the data and then i have you forever right you know it's it's um you know and the way you describe that uh, too simon that it's it's interesting um because i i think that kind of balance you're talking about versus like storing it just in case or like i don't know like it's almost like a you know a fomo thing fear of missing out it's like i want to keep the data just in case but as mm -hmm. you're saying like there's in particularly some of these real-world applications, the data just gets so massive that to do that with everything is just not not practical. So you're right. you're balancing those things off. So I, I guess the question when when somebody when you when you're thinking about this, are you in 
are, are basically you informing what you keep and how you build these models based on what you want to accomplish, right? So you, when you when you describe that traffic example, which is a great example, is that, okay, well, if what I really want to know is how long, um, you know, uh, people wait at red lights and what the, you know, some traffic measurement of that. And, and if I need to change the sequence to at certain times of the day to update that, or I want, you know, I want to update, um, you know, navigational maps for places like Uber, that's going to inform what you keep. So in some sense, you're, you're choosing what to keep based on what you're trying to accomplish as opposed to this, what's potentially possible. Is that, is that? Yes. Or, or there's a much more efficient way to store digested version of the data. So, for example, if you just look at the state of the infrastructure in Las Vegas, you go from 60 terabytes to a gigabyte a day, which is fine. Yeah. Okay. And that's just like the current state of every light and as it changes, right, and every car going over every loop, that's all very compact and can be efficiently represented, not the original raw data, which is just ghastly. No, that makes, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Well, well, I, I guess, you know, getting to potentially other examples, cause I, this, I mean, this is really fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of different ways to approach this. So you've talked about traffic, um, you talked about, you know, fiction manufacturing processes. What, what other, what other places do you see where this kind of approach is, is really bearing fruit that you, you, you're seeing that, um, yeah, so I want to give you a couple of examples which are not analytics-based, okay? So we're deployed in cities where these digital twins of intersections are predicting for themselves what their futures look like, right, two minutes ahead, and then publishing, streaming those predictions. And it's the predictions which are value and they're low rate, and they can be pushed directly into Uber's Kafka or whatever. And what you can see there is a digestion of a fixed the state or the evolving state of fixed assets into predictions. But here's another cool one. We do a bunch of smart city stuff in Dubai. And let me give an example. If a truck with bad cornering or braking behavior enters into a geofence of 100 yards around the inspector, tell the inspector. So you can pull the driver over. Now, there what you have is a notion of mobile things. And so you can't necessarily be on the network where the data is coming from, right? So how does the data from the GPS uh, tracker in the truck uh, arrive? It arrives over a thing called the internet. (laughs) So you can't assume that you're on the network and you get to reduce the data on the fly, right? So you're getting raw data somewhere of the internet. Where are you going to run this thing? Oh, in the cloud, right? Because otherwise where? You don't know where. And so there is an aspect for mobile things where you can't necessarily be on the, the same network. But there is another interesting aspect here, which is that these applications which involve streaming data are necessarily extraordinarily granular and local. They always end up local. People want local insights. What is going to happen right here, right now? Okay. It's not like computing the averages or distributions and stuff. The the things that the analytic stacks of your did, okay, 
which you can do easily in batch mode and so on. It's like, what's about to happen around, him, around me? So what we're finding is that the applications are extremely granular. And what we end up doing is building graphs on the fly. So you've heard of graph databases, right. and you probably dug into that uh, in a, extensively. What we end up doing is building graphs of digital twins on the fly. So this truck is near, so it falls in a geofence, and geofence is on a digital twin. It falls in a geofence um, of this inspector, link the truck and the inspector so the inspector can see the details of the truck, like its number plate and so on, its license plate, and let the application then drive the inspector to go off and inspect the truck. So the graphs that we build are in memory, in real time, and they're built from data. Okay, so data is continually happening. These digital twins are receiving their own data in parallel. They're all concurrent, effectively objects, and they link to other objects in their neighborhood based on constraints that you specify. So this contextual uh, linking is a bit like PubSub, but what it allows is that two things linked in this graph can see each other's state in real time in memory and compute on that. Okay, and they're all computing in parallel. Okay, so every digital twin of everything is concurrently processing its own data and forming links and computing on all of its links and coming up with observations and theories and whatever else. Okay, so what we're doing is building a big concurrent digital twin set from real-world data and then letting digital twins go off and behave effectively, form links, and compute their own uh, inferences as a result of that and then tell you. Now, you know, when you're saying the um, with, the, with the digital twins here, make sure I, I understand too is that so the digital twins, are they, are, I can think about the right way to ask this, is it only the observed or also the observer? So you're talking about two, two potential types of actors here. You've got the inspector and you've got the, um, and you've got the, the, the people, you know, the trucks. So the digital twins are the trucks, but are you, do you also mapping out the, the people that are observing or? Yeah. So for everything in the environment. So we have some application use case, right? So the traffic guys say, hey, do this for us. The actual partner of ours does this. So there is a digital twin of the inspector, which includes where they are, their GPS location from their mobile device and so on. So we know where they are. And we probably know a bunch of other things about that person and so on. And then there's a digital twin for every truck. And uh, then there's a map and we know where they are. And then there's a digital twin for the geofence, and the geofence is continually computing and linking to everything that falls within its geofence. So for the truck, we know it's UPS coordination, its coordinates, as well as its license plate, a bunch of other stuff. And so the key thing I want to get across here is that there could be hundreds of these geofences operating. They're all computing in parallel in absolute concurrency, right? And so whenever a truck enters any one of them or whatever, 
every one of those is reacting on the fly, right? And so they're continually computing based on data that they observe. So a truck continually publishes its um, location and the inspector too. And the geofence then says, aha, you're within me and you're, you know, you're within me as in the inspector and the truck and notifies the inspector literally to go and talk to the truck. And the key point here is that all of this is concurrent. And so this is a model of the real world. These digital twins are effectively modeling the way we want the real world to be, or the way we want to predict about the real world or analyze about the real world. Now, there is a real challenge here, which is how do you create these models? Let me give you two, two worlds. If you believe Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, you have enough money to hire a, a data scientist who's going to go off and build you a big model of the world and train it using data in the cloud and then maybe push it to the edge. Right. Okay. Let me tell you why that doesn't <laughs> work. First, you don't have enough money. <laughs> you don't have enough money to hire that person. Second, you've got to get the data to the cloud. Third, they've got to train them. They've got to build a model and train it. And there are all sorts of problems about whether or not the data is effective, underflow and overflow, and so on. And then you've got to push it to the edge and manage it through its lifecycle. So let me simplify that and say it's complete bullshit. It's just never going to happen. Okay, it's just absolutely impossible. But what's totally possible is to let a model build itself. So here's what we do. Let me go back to my traffic example, but we'll happily go anywhere else. Data shows up for a thing. For every thing that is, every source that is saying data, if there is not a digital twin of it already in memory, create one. Let it run concurrently. And then from then on, it will acquire its own raw data and statefully evolve. So it's a stateful concurrent object in memory. Right. Okay. And so all these digital twins acquire their own raw data and statefully evolve concurrently. So at all points in time, these digital twins are a mirror of the real world and they aim to be absolutely in real time. But that's not enough. What you really want is a graph, which is their relatedness. Mm -hmm. Okay. So intersections own about 80 sensors, maybe. Okay. And intersections are near other intersections, okay? And cars going over loops are sending events into an intersection saying, I'm here. And so this graph, which is the interrelatedness of these digital, of the things in the real world, is reflected in real time in memory. And goodness me, it just grows. It builds itself. So the same code that runs traffic.swim.ai, which is a real-time view of downtown Palo Alto, will also run and build a model on the fly of Houston and Las Vegas and, you know, Jackson Hole and wherever else. Mm -hmm. Okay? So these models are constructive. Data builds a model, and the model trains itself. It trains itself on its own data, and that's totally awesome. Yeah. No, this is – it's uh... – it's really cool. Now, now, 
you know, if, if I think about the situation that we're in, um, I can't help but, but think that this sounds awfully similar to, uh, I actually had a discussion, uh, with another, uh, a couple guests talking about graph models and we ended up, you know, talking about, um, you know, uh, basically in, in, in infection models and, you know, and, and even like social distancing types of models, it, it sounds like this would be applicable to that. Is that right? Yes. In fact, you know, the thing that Google and Apple came up with is we had come up with exactly the same idea, but from, from a monitoring perspective. Okay. It turns out that effectively Google and Apple do it on your phone. They build a digital twin of you, and this digital twin remembers other things that it comes near to, okay? It does it privately and so on. And privacy is key and making sure that, you know, it's not available to ad tech or to law enforcement unless there's a warrant or whatever it else, okay? That's key, and I think Apple and Google did a good job there, but we came up with essentially the same idea. And, of course, the carriers... The big mobile operators could have done it. No, they didn't. And um, and it, you know, and so so in saying, is this something that you guys have actually you came up with the ideas? Is actually something that's being done right now? Or is that the, this idea of building different? Not that I'm aware of. And by the way, I think the app, the APIs that um, Google and Apple have made available um, would be fun. We're going to go from play against those APIs. Um, their goal is to publish um, appropriately privatized information for each device to ensure that um, people can go off and build apps. That'd be fun. So we're going to go into hmm. it. No, I, I it, it, it does sound really cool. Now you you know you mentioned this um, you know briefly about the the privacy thing, and I I, I wonder how much. Um, you have spent time thinking about this and having to deal with this because in some sense like what i'm what i'm hearing you say is like okay the phone companies apple google whoever is basically building a digital twin of me and now i'm thinking like well that that really kind of puts a point on the whole idea of owning my own information do i do i own my digital twin you know <laughs> how does that work out right um actually i've thought extensively about the privacy of this there is the extreme case which is how do you ensure there is no backdoor into your device, okay, that nobody can ever get into your device unless there is a legal warrant, in which case, you know, you don't have a choice. So I, I worked on that one, and I even published some stuff on it using mechanisms to effectively shard a key. So it would be something like this. For every user, you back up the state of the device continually. It's encrypted in the cloud, so no bad guys can get hold of it. And the key that could decrypt it is agile, but is sharded amongst multiple disparate entities with different mm. interests. So you could say the, the, the key to decrypt it would be split between Apple and Google and Microsoft and Verizon and God knows who else, okay? And there is a process which would allow them to not combine the key ever but nonetheless to compute on the encrypted data. Um, and that process is an evolving branch of mathematics. Um, you know, if, if you split the decryption key across di distrustful parties, that's a good thing. And then you let them compute on the data if a warrant is um, sent digitally to each one of them without actually combining the key into one 
uh, a single entity again. So privacy is crucial. And I think Google and Apple have actually taken a good step here. Oh, that's, 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 that's good to hear. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, and this is, this is truly, this is truly fascinating because I, it, like everything you're saying, it's, it's literally easy to, to, to visualize, um, you know, things that are literally happening at this very moment, you know, and, and how different countries are dealing with this and, um, you know, and how, how seriously they take that, um, you know, cause I, I, I can think of what's happening in certain countries where people are being, being tracked once they're, you know, infected and, and, and being fined and things like that. And there, there's some efficacy for that, but the, yeah, the privacy implications are pretty, pretty enormous. So, um, well, well, I, I guess one, you know, to kind of put a, a bow on all this, I mean, I think this is, this is a super fascinating area, obviously, and what you guys are doing are very, very interesting. Where, where do you think this, this area is, is going? I mean, where, where are some of the things that you're seeing? The big trend is towards streaming data processing, right? That is compute first and analyze and react. And then if you have to sort the data, that's fine. But compute and analyze and then store if you want to. And if you store, you probably store something which is of durable value, not necessarily just raw data. And so there is a big trend towards that. It started out as IoT, which is a non-market. Then it became edge computing, which is another non-market. Well, there are chips and boxes and stuff, right? But it's really about applications and state and an ability to compute on large amounts of data. And why is it really important? It's important because 20 billion new devices show up on the internet every year. And so with that number of things arriving, it's actually this idea that a database would know the current state of the world is actually rather silly. I mean, why would a database know? It's easier to know by virtue of talking to the digital twin, which is continually evolving, evolving in lockstep with the thing. So streaming data processing becomes vital. There's no way you could ever store all those bits. So an ability to know and to compute on the fly is absolutely essential. No, it makes it, and, and when you put it to those numbers with the with the, with the new devices, that really does put it in, in in contrast, and it's it's uh kind of at the core of the the whole idea of what you do with all this growing data. So I, I I think that's fascinating. I think what um what you guys are doing, Simon, is 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 really interesting, and I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm personally interested to see how all this works out and how the how the the area grows because I uh, I think there's a lot of interesting applications. Let me just mention that Swim is open source, so Swim OS. So if you go to developer.swim.ai and play, we're looking about user mode extensions to the Java virtual machine or else native compile using Graal. So it's simple stuff, and you can get going fast to develop really high value apps. Hmm. That's fascinating. We'll make sure to uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes as well, but. Uh, Simon, I appreciate your time. I mean, this is a, I think this is a fascinating area and, and particularly with some of the stuff we talked about, uh, very, very relevant. And I, I wish you guys luck and thank you for coming on. Thanks, man. That was fun. And, uh, thanks everybody again for listening to another episode of Masters of Data. And, uh, as always, uh, rate and review us on your favorite, um, podcast, uh, location and, uh, so that other people can find us and thank you for listening. 
Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.